Saint Rose of Lima once said, the gifts of grace increase as the sorrow increases. Welcome to the 91st episode of Saint Dimpness Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want everyone to remember that even in the midst of our deepest and darkest sorrow, there is hope, there is grace, and there is a life worth living. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimphna's Mentions. The importance of discussing mental health in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic is something we're going to keep coming back to. And this time around, we're going to talk about the impact the pandemic has had on postpartum depression in women of color. The LA Times gets us started. Although the California Public Health Department has not yet released figures on the number of women with postpartum depression since 2018, experts say that an increase in calls from women asking for help from local nonprofit organizations, along with lengthening hospital waiting lists, indicate that postpartum depression cases may have increased dramatically over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. Women of color continue to be among the most affected, in part because many do not have health insurance or their insurance covers little to no therapy. Evidence suggests that some Latina mothers may hesitate to seek help because of the stigmas associated with mental illness, as well as cultural expectations surrounding motherhood and the traditional roles of women in Latin societies. In addition, many of those affected are not being screened for postpartum depression, despite California's maternal mental health bill AB 2193, which went into effect on July 1st, 2019, requiring that obstetricians and gynecologists screen mothers for these conditions during and after pregnancy and ensure that they get any needed treatment. The most recent available CDPH statistics from 2018 indicate that one in five California women suffer from postpartum depression during or after giving birth, which translated to 100,000 cases a year. The report also states that Black and Latino women experience the highest percentage of depressive symptoms among all racial and ethnic groups during both the prenatal and postpartum periods. According to the CDPH, quote, disparities are particularly evident for the prenatal symptoms of depression, which are twice as common for Black, 19.9%, and Latina, 17.1% women, compared to White, 9.5%, and Asian Pacific Islander, 10.3% women. A UCLA clinic has seen a 30% increase in postpartum depression cases since the pandemic started. And there's a particular concern for low-income women of color who are disappearing into the cracks of an inaccessible healthcare system. So back to me, we've discussed maternal mental health so many times on this podcast, and that's because screening and services for maternal mental health are lacking across our healthcare system. I want all of us to be acutely aware of the problem and to stand up and speak out about the need for accessible mental health services for pregnant women and new moms, and to really try to push ourselves to be the community that these mothers need, helping in any way we can, speaking out about our own experiences of depression so our sisters know that they are not alone. We can't do it all, but we can make a difference in someone's life by walking with them in their suffering and helping them to navigate the complicated system of care at a time when they may not have the ability to do it on their own. 
So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to introduce you to Saint Veronica Giuliani. Born in 1690 in present-day Italy, Ursula, her name at birth, was the youngest of seven, three of whom would go on to embrace the monastic life. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, at the age of three years, Giuliani began to show great compassion for the poor. She would set apart a portion of her food for them and even part with her clothes when she met a poor child in need. Tragically, her mother died when she was just seven years old. As she moved through the grief process, she was known to be somewhat dictatorial in her personality, and at age six, her father wanted her to get married, but she pleaded with him to allow her to choose her own state in life. At age 17, she was received into the Poor Clare Monastery. According to Saint Stories for All Ages, for 50 years, Giuliani lived in the convent. With gritty determination tempered by humility, she led her sisters as novice mistress for 34 years and as abbess for 11. Giuliani governed the convent with obvious common sense and guided the novices with prudence. She would not allow them to read mystical books, reading them instead, uh, to st- requiring them instead to study books on Christian basics. In 1716, she was elected abbess. As a practical woman, she improved her sister's comfort by enlarging the convent rooms and having water piped inside. She received the stigmata starting in 1694 and was kept under the close watch of the bishop until he determined that her experience was authentic and she died in 1727. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. O God, who declare that you abide in hearts that are pure, grant that through the intercession of St. Veronica, we may be so fashioned by your grace that we become a dwelling pleasing to you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Anonymous gets us started. It seems to me sometimes that in Catholic spirituality, one is supposed to hate themselves. In the Bible, Jesus says, those who love their lives lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Does this mean that we should not enjoy life? I also know that I'm supposed to deny myself and reject a life of earthly comfort and recognize that I am a wretched sinner. For this reason, I feel extremely guilty when I find myself enjoying something like a cookie or a warm shower or when I feel proud of myself. Um, or content even. Reading about the lives of the saints also makes me very anxious as many of of them inflicted harsh penances upon themselves, such as extreme fasting, self-mutilation, etc. Does Jesus want us to hate ourselves or harm ourselves? Is this what it takes to get to heaven? Can I even hope to get to heaven? I, I do not understand how God, who is a loving father, would want us to do things like this to ourselves. And it's a huge obstacle for me since it makes it hard for me to trust and love God, who seems like he wants us to suffer and to hate our lives and ourselves. Okay, let's start by joining in prayer together for Anonymous and all of us who are striving to figure out how to live lives that are good and holy in the context of so many extreme examples in the gospel and the lives of the saints. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. First, I want you to know that you are not alone. When it comes to these questions and concerns about what actually makes us holy or the feelings of struggling with the lives of some of the saints who undertook extreme penance or even the words of Jesus himself that seem to make it sound like we shouldn't enjoy our lives, you aren't alone. Next, let's walk through a couple thoughts on this. First of all, it's important to remember that God desires that all be saved. This is made clear in many places in scripture, but perhaps most clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So we can know with absolute assurance that God wants all of us to get to heaven. And if he wants all of us to get to heaven, we must assume that he makes heaven accessible to all of us, even if it's in a way that we don't quite understand in the present moment. Next, I find solace in the spirituality of St. Francis de Sales, who talks a lot about the idea that we aren't meant to become something other than what we are, or someone other than who we are, in order to become a saint. Instead, becoming a saint is really about becoming the most ourselves that we can be, if that makes sense. Our personality, our approach to life, our grumpiness, our sarcastic nature, our desire to have some peace and comfort, all of these things that make up who we are as a person, all of these things are a part of our route to becoming the person God meant for us to be. I can admit that I've also gotten stuck reading the lives of the saints and wondering if I have to be like them or if I'm called to engage in extreme acts that some of them undertook. But I think the point above from the ideas of St. Francis de Sale really shed some light on this for me. We are not called to be like St. Rose of Lima or Dorothy Day in order to get to heaven. We are called to be ourselves and called to find holiness within our particular state in life, within our unique personality, our abilities, our interests, etc. So for me, it's through my role as a parent, as a husband, as a therapist. For you, it's through your various roles based on your life, your personality, and the things that tug at your heart that are important to you. All too often, I find I try to push aside my interests or parts of my personality that I think shouldn't be associated with the me that's trying to become a saint. But I think that while that's uh, my inclination, I've actually got it all wrong. Instead, I need to try to realize that all of those little things actually come from God and are things that can draw me closer to him and closer to being the person I'm meant to be. I also think it's important to remember that those extreme things done by saints down through the ages were done with very close spiritual direction. Those saints were operating on a different level than most of us and understood things differently than we ever will this side of heaven. So their actions are unique to them and appropriate to them, but not to us. Last here, I'm not a biblical expert, of course, but when Jesus calls us to hate our lives for his sake, I believe he's referring to hating the things about life that we shouldn't be striving for, hating the things that corrupt us and keep us focused on this life instead of eternal life, power, excessive riches, dominance over others, or a perverse desire to be in control of our lives instead of being open to allowing God's plan for our lives to unfold. I think he uses this shocking language to make sure we're paying attention. But what he means is something more nuanced than what we initially think when we hear the words. We would all do well to remember that God allows good things in our lives. Good things like the gift of baking delicious warm cookies, enjoying a funny movie with a friend, things like that. Enjoying things in life is as natural a part of life uh, as experiencing suffering, right? So God wants us to experience all of this, to have life 
and have it abundantly. All right, I hope that helps. A different anonymous is up next. I'm the godparent to a friend's 15-year-old child. The friend has disclosed information over the years that make me worry for my godchild. Most recently, an offhand remark on how the godchild really wants to cuddle when they are sleeping together at night. This made apparent that my friend is sharing a bed each night with my godchild, who is the opposite sex. I weighed in that it's not healthy for my godchild and the child's development and need for privacy, and my friend brushed it off. My friend wants to share a bed as long as possible with my godchild. That seems nuts and abusive, but I don't know what my options are. Do I report the friend to child services? Do I talk with my godchild? Do I cut the friend out of my life? First off, let's join in prayer for Anonymous, for their friend and for their godchild, that God's grace may pour into all their hearts and help bring peace, comfort, and freedom from anxiety and any other danger. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Well, thank you for this question and for your concern for your Godchild. It's a beautiful witness that you're thinking about what's best for them and how best to help them. As for this co-sleeping scenario, this may be an issue or it may not. It all depends on the context. It's first important to realize that ideas around the appropriateness of co-sleeping with children of all ages varies from culture to culture. I don't know the cultural background of your friend and their family, but I thought it was important to at least touch on that first. So according to fatherly.com, in a study of 186 non-industrial cultures, Anthropologist John Whitting found that 67% of children sleep in the company of others. The most prominent he found was mother with child in one bed and father in another bed. That's the norm in 50% of the cultures that was surveyed. As it turns out, Americans are actually in the minority here. Around the world, sleeping together in marriage isn't really normal, and sleeping away from one's children is considered weird. So back to me. The next bit of context that's important to consider is the reasons why co-sleeping is taking place. According to Psychology Today, the reason for parents allowing older children to co-sleep are complex and not completely understood. Anecdotal data indicates that children today have higher levels of anxiety than previous generations. The reasons for this include high divorce rate, frequent transitions, more overscheduling, greater academic pressures, the influence of being plugged in 24-7. As a result, children today are often less self-reliant. Many preteen children don't yet know how to be alone at bedtime and they haven't been forced to learn. As a result, parents allow co-sleeping, assuming that kids will naturally grow out of it, and many did not. Back to me. So with that being said, co-sleeping can lead to some issues, including a strain in between spouses and even people in the family just not getting a good night's sleep. In terms of the idea of calling child protective services, I think one should start with an open conversation about things. If you can approach your friend in a way of wanting to learn more about their ideas around co-sleeping and perhaps the reasons behind it, sort of in a way of wanting to learn more and to be able to empathize, you, you might learn some things that you didn't know before, and that might bring you comfort and knowledge that your godchild is doing okay. One, one more piece I think is important regarding child protective services here. There are three main reasons that you would call uh, child protective services. We'll go back to that fatherly.com article to help out. So here's the three reasons. Physical abuse. Does the child have signs of injury or do you believe there's imminent threat of violence? Sexual abuse. 
Have you seen certain signs or behavioral signs such as flinching or raising of hands in a defensive manner? Do you suspect some kind of sexual abuse or exploitative behavior? Neglect. Does the child in question live in an unlivable environment? Are they left alone for long periods of time without proper care? And of course, since this is a Catholic mental health podcast, pray, 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 pray for the safety of all involved. Pray for the good mental and emotional health of all involved. And pray for guidance from your guardian angel. A third anonymous brings us on home. In researching my own anxiety issues masquerading as procrastination, I am learning about the various ways anxiety manifests itself in behavior. But the more I read, the more my niece's struggle come to mind. My niece has shared how it's hard to start tasks because she feels a need to do the task perfectly. She also has problems at work where she gets angry at others for not completing a task perfectly. This rigidity seems to be impacting her life negatively. But how do you start a conversation about anxiety without coming across like you're diagnosing someone? I know that I've suffered for years without being able to understand the anxious roots of my own behavior. If I hadn't done a lot of research on procrastination, I would still be trying ineffective fixes instead of focusing on the root causes. How can I help? Well, let's begin by praying for Anonymous, praying for Anonymous's niece, and praying for all of us who experience anxiety and the need for tasks to be completed just right in order to reduce that anxiety for peace in our hearts this very day. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. This is such an excellent and important question, so thank you so much for asking it. And I'd like to say what a blessing it is that you were able to work through some of the reasons for your anxiety and behaviors related to that anxiety and work on it in your own life. What a great witness. And now wanting to help your niece, it's, it's all just really quite beautiful, so thank you. The question of how do I talk to someone and offer help to them or get them connected to help without making them feel like I'm being negative or judgmental or saying they're crazy, it's a really important question, especially because when we're struggling with mental health symptoms like anxiety or obsessive thoughts about things needing to be done just right, we're already judging ourselves, feeling bad about ourselves, feeling broken. And so even the slightest conversation about what we're already judging ourselves about can really hurt. So the best piece of advice and encouragement I can give is this. Use your own experience as a starting point. Don't start by saying something like, I've noticed that you seem to have a lot of anxiety and need to have things done just right to help quiet that anxiety. Have you ever thought about getting help? Instead, say something like, you know, when I was younger, I had a really hard time starting projects or working on projects, and it took some time to look more deeply at why I was doing this. And do you know what I realized? You can start with these I statements to share your story without any connection to what you see your niece going through, using examples of how you were able to develop coping skills, how you were able to work through this experience once you took some time to see where it was coming from. I would last remind us that when we're dealing with anxiety or just right OCD or depression, often we're thinking about it and thinking about how we're suffering and thinking about how much it sucks all the time. It isn't like we're waiting for someone to walk up and give us this insight. We're the experts on ourselves, and we usually know what's going on. So that being said, we stuff it down. 
We block it out. We try to do everything but the thing we probably need to do to get help. And that's why a simple conversation about your own experience for your niece to feel safe, to open up and engage in that conversation where you can let her know that she isn't alone and that there's hope is so, so powerful. We'll be praying for you guys. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. You can also head on over to the Ave Maria website to pre-order the St. Dymphna's Playbook book that's due out in November. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.